Well, welcome again. See you all of you here. Starting to fill in a little bit in here. So that's good. I, uh, I, I just said to Ron this morning, I think for Christmas Eve, we're going to have to put the other chairs back out. And uh, so that'll be a good thing, right? Um, because you're all going to be friends and family to Christmas Eve, right? Yes, okay. It's going to be really great. You're not going to want to miss it. Uh, today, you should have received, if you didn't get one, we can get you one. There's either a red or, blue, or green. Apparently, some people wanted green and not red, but that's okay. We can all be picky sometimes, Kevin, right? So, um, but that's going to go along a little bit with my sermon series, which is going to be from Isaiah 42, the Advent season here. And we're going to be using the, that passage, but also looking at one of the wonderful uh, Christmas songs. Uh, my favorites is, is O Holy Night, and how it connects with Isaiah 42. Um, so we're going to start at Isaiah 42, 1 through 7, and it's kind of, uh, you're, you're, you're starting in a passage we want to be on, or I wanted to be on for Christmas, but it's kind of continuing some other stuff that's before it. Um, and so this is about God's servant, Messiah. Uh, and uh, in the Isaiah 42, 1 through 7, uh, it's the first of four uh, what are referred to as servant songs in Isaiah. They refer to God's servant, the Messiah, Jesus. Um, the other three in Isaiah 49, 52, and 53, and, uh, and also chapter 50. Uh, those are called and so we will see that um, right before Isaiah 42 we had Isaiah 41 where God is talking about um, the the people who worship idols and the vanity that that is um, and in 41 verse 29 it's those who worship idols are are all vanity and then we get an immediate contrast to those who worship idols in verse 1 of 42, where it begins with, Behold my servant. Um, and in Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to look at that in, uh, momentarily, these words are applied to the earthly ministry of Jesus, um, who could have his enemies, but he was patient and merciful, and the Lord, the Father delights in his Son. So I'm going to read the passage and then we'll get into it together. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard on the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nation, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, 
from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So, again, during the Advent season, we're going to be looking at this passage, and again, how it corresponds with the song, O Holy Night. And uh, on the flyer that that you should have, uh, you have the text of Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, in the translation I'm usually reading it from, so that should help if you don't have that translation. Um, Then it also has the English translation of Holy Night, which is the translation that most of us are familiar with hearing, and also what's called a literal translation. In other words, they just took word for word from the French, the original language of the hymn, and gave us an English uh, word. So what you find in the, in the little, literal translation is that the words aren't going to rhyme, right? Because they're just taking straight from the French and making it necessarily going to rhyme. Unlike the, verse, the version you're used to hearing and singing, which was written in a way that we would be able to sing in English, uh, and it would be more poetic that way. But as you examine them, uh, you won't be able to get the original French language, although you can go and listen to recordings of it. Gary walked into my office as I was listening to uh, Placido Domingo, the famous tenor singing from the Cantique de Noël in the original French. And you can listen to things like that online if you like to hear it. So the question we're going to ask today is, well, how did that song get started? Um, and it originally started to be just a poem. It was just to be a Christmas poem. So there was a priest in France in the year 1847. And as he was looking forward to Christmas Mass, he probably did what a lot of people in ministry did and think, how am I going to make this Christmas Eve really special for everyone? You know, you do it year after year, and there's always a sense of, I really want to have this be special this year. So he asked the village wine commissioner to write a poem for Christmas. Nobody really knows why he asked this guy. Maybe he was known as a writer. Um, But the interesting thing is that the wine commissioner was not even a believer. Asked him to write this down, and he wrote this poem. He was writing in the back of a... Considering the Christmas story as written in Luke, and also drawing from his things that he remembered from his own catechism... The poet, and his name was Placide Capot, penned the words to this poem. And he was really satisfied with it. In fact, he thought it was so good that it should be set to music. And so he enlisted the talent of a composer named Adolf Charles Adams. So who was Adolf Charles Adams? He was a Jewish man who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And certainly didn't celebrate Christmas. So now you have a song written by an unbeliever, put to music by another unbeliever. And so the priest had the song for Christmas Eve, and it was sung. Uh, It was called Cantique de Noel. Cantique de Noel. It simply just means Christmas hymn or Christmas song. 
And it became instantly popular and quickly found its way into churches. But some years later, the Catholic Church found out that the man who wrote it, Capo, not only was not a believer, but he had aligned himself with the socialists. This is, you'll have to go to your history lesson to learn a little more about that. But he was also, they also found out that Melody was written by a non-believing Jew. And so the Catholic Church banned the song from being sung in any church. But it was too late, right? Everybody had learned the song. It had become familiar. And uh, so people kept singing it even if they couldn't sing it at church. Now, the story of this powerful song doesn't end there. There's a lot more to the story, but as I've said, you'll have to come back the next few Sundays to hear the rest of the story. And as we continue, we're going to begin to see how this song connects with the passage we just read, Isaiah 42. So it's amazing, right? A song written by a non-believer and put to music by another non-believer Originally in the English, or originally in French language, and later translated for us to English, but there's some strong theology in the original song written by the non-believer, and you'll see that as you look at the literal translation. There's some words you don't really hear in church songs today, words like original sin, the wrath of his father. It says. O mighty ones of today, proud of your grandeur, it is to your pride that God preaches. Do you hear songs like that today? Not so much. And in verse 3, the beautiful truth that our God is the one who will finally put an end to injustice and set free prisoners and slaves. So who is the one who could do that? He's the one that's spoken of in Isaiah 42. Starting at verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, how do we know this refers to Jesus? Well, if you've been in my Bible class yet, or maybe you've heard me in the pulpit say this, but we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay, we, we, whenever we can, if, if one scripture speaks of another scripture, we let scripture define scripture. So in the Gospels, we know that any time Jesus got the attention of the people, it angered the religious leaders, right? And they hated him for it. You know, they wanted to kill him. And there's many examples of this, but there's one where Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, Let's take a look at it. He said to the man, Matthew 12, 13, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant in whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom I am pleased, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So we know 
from Scripture, interpreting Scripture, that the servant Isaiah is referring to is Jesus. Matthew confirms it and, it and says it was fulfilled through Jesus. So he is God's servant whom God upholds and in whom God's soul delights. We're also reminded then of what happened at Jesus' baptism, which is recorded in Matthew 3.17. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And he will be a person of justice as well. Verses 2 to 4, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest. This is Isaiah 2.24. Sorry. Um, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for the many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. And he will be the final fulfillment as well. And we're going to see this at the very end of the New Testament If you look at the book of Revelation, Jesus, at the end, will finally execute his final and perfect judgment. And this is in contrast to what what ends the previous chapter of of Isaiah 41, verse 29. It says, Behold, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So again, that's the people who make idols and worship their idols. And then it is immediately contrasted right after that with, with the Lord. He's talking about the futility of idols, the folly of those who serve them and worship them. And unlike them, the Lord's servant, Jesus, is the one in whom God delights. And in verse 4, we see that he will not rest until he has established justice on the earth. So God makes his love known to us. And he will give glory to no other nor his praise to carved idols. He will love us until we finally get it. He stakes his honor on it. Therefore, we're not confined to our abominations in our prisons. God saves us not by telling us to lose ourselves in some vaguely defined cosmic, uh, you know, entity or something like that, but by taking himself at his cross and on, onto himself all of our wrongs that we've done and giving back to us our truest selves, that's how God proves he really is God. And we need to believe it. Verse 9 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass, new things I now declare. What's he saying? God is proving himself here by his prophecies. He gives us a verifiable short-term prediction because what he's, he's predicting in, in Isaiah, that section of Isaiah, is the, the coming of Cyrus. Okay? And that happened. Okay? As a public event in human history, it happened. 
And this gives God instant credibility. But he does that to get us believing that his long-term prediction of worldwide perfection through Christ is also going to happen. God is saying, if I kept my word about Cyrus, and I did, and you know I did, then you can believe that I'll keep my word about my servant. In fact, I launched this mission 2,000 years ago. It's already underway. So dump your idols and trust me. I want you to be part of this new world. And this is what's exciting about it. And this is why we write music about it, right? So the servant of the Lord is Jesus, whom God delights in, and who will bring forth justice to the nations. So we just studied together over the last four weeks the common cry that we all have for justice, right? In the past week or so, two very high-profile cases came to jury. And, and finally, the verdict was given. And I've heard commentary on both of those. And I'm not going to comment on it myself, because that's not my job here. But I want to just say, you might have decided that one or both of those cases were decided poorly. Maybe you disagreed with the jury. Maybe you thought they missed something. Maybe you thought the police did a bad job. Maybe you thought whatever. Whatever our opinion is, what we do know is that human justice falls short, right? No outcome for any criminal trial ever comes out with perfection. Somebody always has a beef with it, right? Especially the one going to jail. They always do. But the justice that Jesus is going to bring, that's going to be perfect. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. Another defining characteristic of Jesus that we find in verse 2 is humility. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Even powerful leaders like Napoleon have marveled at the impact Jesus had on the world despite the fact that he was not a military leader or a government head, but yet he had more impact on the world than anyone before him and after. See, many leaders are always seeking the spotlight, right? And they're in love with the sound of their own voice. And it was said of one politician that the most dangerous to be, place to be was between him and a microphone, right? Now today that would be the TV camera. Uh, it's no wonder that so many politicians and celebrities are narcissists, right? That's why they seek out the spotlight in the first place, and then they get so addicted to the praise of others, they do whatever it takes to get even more attention. Sadly, sometimes they even do embarrassing or demeaning things just to keep the attention up. How many young ladies or young men have debased themselves simply to get a part in a movie or to get the attention of someone they think will help their career? You could say that our whole society is currently teetering on the brink because of narcissism. It's a dangerous thing. Checking back on your Facebook or other pages over and over to see if there's any new comments or likes on the photo you posted. In fact, many people post photos not to bless anyone or edify anyone else, just because they're looking for hits. Janelle and I heard Francis Chan some years ago, and he said, ours is the most narcissistic society in history. Everyone has their very own web page on Facebook where they can post all the details of their life. And what keeps them coming back? A dopamine hit. 
the dopamine hit that, that you get from the acceptance you feel when you get that like. Or even better, the love, right? The little heart. The problem is that dopamine is dopamine. Like with any addiction, the one who gets a good feeling from recognition needs more and more and more to get the same feeling of satisfaction. It's dangerous. And so I kind of agree with Francis Chan. We really are the most narcissistic people in human history. He's not talking about just the U.S., by the way. He's talking about the whole world is on Facebook. Everybody wants to get a, be a YouTube star or a Facebook, uh, get lots of Facebook lights. Now contrast that to Jesus. First of all, he has submitted to the Father. And he's an example to believers of humility. And Paul calls on us to consider that example in Philippians 2. Starting at verse 5, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know, he would have to have that kind of humility to fit the description Isaiah is giving us. One who will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. You see, in Israel's history, when a new king was announced or anointed, they would get an entourage, right? And they'd go up and down the streets shouting, so-and-so is king, so-and-so is king. You can read about that in 2 Samuel. It's kind of interesting. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't make his followers go march or cause some kind of a scene to increase his popularity. In fact, at some points, he did the opposite. He, he actually wanted to be unnoticed at times, it seems like. And so he didn't put a soapbox up on the corner and carry a portable loudspeaker. He didn't take out ads. He did acknowledge that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Because when he read in the synagogue, he read this from Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus applied that scripture to himself. He also confirmed that he was the one Isaiah was writing about. Verse 3 of Isaiah 42, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. This is echoed in Isaiah 57, 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite, and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And in the Psalms as well, we see the fact that God responds to the call or the cry of the brokenhearted. And it's celebrated in Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And again in Psalm 138, 6, Though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, from, but the haughty he knows from afar. As we're in the season of celebrating the birth of Jesus, we're reminded that his beginnings were humble. 
He wasn't born in a palace, but a stable. He suffered rejection. He felt the emotional hurt. And he died in a horrible, painful, and humiliating way. You see, Jesus can empathize with you in the pain that you're going through. Whether it be physical pain or emotional pain or even spiritual pain, he won't break a bruised reed. He will not quench a faintly burning wick. What is a bruised reed? Someone who is damaged from the difficulties of life. Someone who's already suffered. And Jesus doesn't take that person and break their spirit. He's the one who restores the one who feels like life has done them wrong, the one who was raised by terrible, abusive parents, the one who was treated badly because they didn't fit in, the one who tried to do well but just couldn't seem to get it together, the one who kept going back to unhealthy relationships because they didn't even know what a healthy one looks like, the one who was brought to the depths of sadness because of lost loved ones. Jesus doesn't look at these people with contempt, but with compassion. He doesn't say, let's put them out of their ministry, misery. He says, he steps into their world from eternity past, born under humble circumstances, so that he could go through the difficulties of life to feel the pain of human existence. And he says to each of us when we're hurting, I understand. I feel the pain with you. And he isn't about to just bring us to the breaking point. Rather, he carries us through the breaking point. You know, I see a lot of times it's maybe posted on Facebook or on a poster or something that says something like this. Well, God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, that sounds nice. Is that true, though? No, God gives us, many of us, more than we can handle. But in his grace, he gives us the power of his Holy Spirit, the refreshing of his word, so that the situations that are too big for us to handle, he empowers us to handle. See the difference? I've known Christian funeral home directors. And one told me what a stark difference it is in the mourning of a family who has faith versus a family that doesn't. See, the family with no faith has no hope. In their grief, they're unable to handle that stress and sadness of death but the believer has reason to hope. The believer still grieves. It's not that we don't grieve and we just smile when someone dies that we love and say, oh, that's great. No, we grieve, but it's different. We know that in the end, the Lord will wipe every tear from our eyes. Our grief is not eternal. And when we're grieving over sin, when we examine ourselves and we are grieving over our sin, we don't have to be discouraged about that either. For the one who is brokenhearted by their own sin, he will not break you. In fact, your salvation lies in the feelings of brokenness over sin. Some of the people I believe that I've met in my life that were the closest to God were the ones who were brokenhearted over their sin and anguishing over it. That's actually what brings us closer to God when we bring it before him and lay it all out. Psalm 51, 17 from David's prayer after being confronted on adultery and murder. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And a faintly burning wick, 
he will not quench. Is your faith weakened? Jesus will not snuff it out. You see, if you have true saving faith in him, you cannot be lost. You cannot be if you have true saving faith in him. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Jude 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You see, Jesus is the life giver to all who put faith in him. Sometimes our faith has its ups and downs. We're responsible to maintain it. We're responsible to work it out with fear and trembling. But in those times when our faith seems like it's dying away, Jesus preserves our faith to bring us out on the other side. Sometimes he uses other believers, right? Sometimes he calls upon us to fan our own flame. This is what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hand. Paul is telling Timothy... Fan that flame. Get it going again. Paul's reminding him we all need encouragement, right? We need each other to remind us of the promises of Scripture. Jesus is the servant of Isaiah 42. He is also Emmanuel, God with us. So this Advent season, let's make sure that we take every opportunity to reflect on Jesus and who he is to us as individuals to us as a church, and to the world as well. To individuals who know him, he is Lord, Savior, friend, our firstborn brother. He came as a humble servant. He suffered as one of us. He faced temptations so that he could sympathize with us, as the writer to the Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. See, he knows. He knows what we're going through. And he proved himself not only victorious over sin, but victorious over every trial of life. And because he did it, those who have faith in him can have confidence in our ultimate victory as well. When we are bruised and banged up by life, he will not break us. When our faith has become but a faintly burning wick, he will not snuff it out. That's the love of our Savior. In fact, we know that God has used weak people as part of his plan of salvation. Was Mary chosen to be his mother because she was this really strong person with lots of power? No, she was chosen as one obedient to God. See, God knew ahead beforehand what her response would be. Luke one thirty eight, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. How many stories could we share from Scripture of examples of Jesus not breaking the bruised reed, not snuffing out the wick? The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the woman with the issue of blood, Peter who had denied him, the woman who asked for crumbs off the table, the woman who washed his feet with her tears. The Gospels record Many such stories of proof that Jesus, the servant of Isaiah 42, would not break the bruised reed and would not snuff out the candle of the one who had small faith. That is who Jesus is to the one who puts faith in him. He's our rock and our fortress. And to the church, 
He's the one who brings unity and love into a community that is united by his blood. In any church, you can take a look around. And if you're paying attention at any given time, among us are bruised reeds. Among us are smoldering wicks. And in the church, we do not want to break anyone or snuff out their faith. Sadly, this can happen though, right? Sometimes we forget to be like Jesus. And rather than encouraging someone by gently reminding them to go forward in their faith, we tear them down rather than build them up. But that's not what we want to be. We want to be humble servants like Jesus. We want God's soul to delight in us. So this Advent season, let us again recommit to being the church God has called us to be. A church that proclaims the truth of his word that sets captives free. A church that marinates in his love so that when people encounter us, they will have a sweet taste in their mouth. A church that takes the bruised reed and binds it to strengthen it and that fans into flame the faith in others. Finally, to the world, who's Jesus? He's the servant of God who's going to bring justice. And as we learned over the complaints of Habakkuk over the last few weeks, be careful what you wish for. When we cry out for justice, his justice is perfect, and it may not be the justice that we were hoping for. But do we trust him with justice? When his gavel comes down, will we trust him? When he gives mercy to someone who deserved punishment, will we be upset by it? As Jonah was upset when God was gracious to Nineveh? I'm going to close by reading the Magnificat. This is Mary's song of praise. It's her response to the statement of Elizabeth, who recognized that Mary's pregnancy and the baby she carried was truly something divine. Elizabeth's baby, John the Baptist, leapt in her womb when Mary approached. And Elizabeth called Mary blessed because she believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Did you hear what Elizabeth just did? She called Mary blessed because she believed in God. You know, maybe Elizabeth had listened to some preaching on Habakkuk 2.4 where it says the righteous shall live by faith. But Elizabeth understood Mary's obedience and faith and commended her for it. And this is Mary's response. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. 
Thank you for the opportunity we have towards the end of every year, Lord, to reflect 